Welcome back to Arts About. Show about art that's a work of art in itself. G'day, Sally. G'day, John. How are you? Good. Mark? Hello, John. Hello, Sally. Uh, welcome uh, back. Yeah, welcome back to all of us. It's great It's great to be back in the studio again Couldn't today. help noticing, Mark, that uh, those shoes that you bought at the beginning of summer are now quite well worn in. Yes, John. <laughs> They've got a whole summer behind them. <laughs> we've been off on a one <laughs> we've been on a wonderful summer break for a few weeks. Thanks very much to Will and Swanee who have bought you Arts About Summertime slash light or light slash summertime. I hope they kept you amused and uh, saved a space in your weekly listening calendar <clears throat> that we can live up to for another year. Um, and I would would just like to say that to the implication that Will made on the last show that John, you, me and Mark went on holidays together and slept head to toe like the, head to toe like the three amigos is not true. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, Arts About is of course brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery and you're here with artist in residence and cultural sounding board John Baird, the poetic Mark Stewart and me, Sally Bailey, after a couple of weeks a well. So did you have a good break, John? Yep. What did you do? Uh, well, I've been in the studio most of the summer because I've got the show coming up in Sydney. Yes, when is that? In a couple of March weeks? March the 23rd. Mm, okay. Where? Uh, at Art House in Sydney, Rushcutters Bay. Do you know why it's called Rushcutters Bay? They used to go down there and cut rushes, I gather. They did, and they... And <laughs> what did they do? They, they make rafts they, or things like that? Well, the rushes, the whole of um, Sydney and Melbourne or Australia had rushes all over, and they used them to, for weaving baskets. Ah. <clears throat> but Rushcutters Bay, there were two people cutting uh, rushes, and a couple of Aborigines didn't like it and killed them. Oh. Mm. Um, I think they also used rushes for uh, foundations for buildings. To huh? set, yes, I think so. In fact, I have a feeling that Salisbury Cathedral has huge amount. Of, it's probably possibly a little bit more than just rushes, but it would be. I think that was used in mixed a mud with mix. mud. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So yeah. Mud. like a form of mud brick. Well, a yeah. mud and a mud brick needs some kind some of straw or something stuff. in it mm. in order to yeah. hold it together. Yes. Good. Don't do this at home, folks. No. Um, what about you, Mark? What have you been up to? Um, well, same thing. I, you know, as most artists, you don't really need to have a holiday because you're on holiday all the time. So it's um, <laughs> well, you're working all the time. Same thing, yes. if you like, John. Yes. But <clears throat> uh, I just stayed at home and, and worked, so it was lovely. Mm. Now everyone's gone. I can come out again. Yes, I know. That's it. it is glorious, isn't it? It is to watch it is, that trail of cars heading back up the peninsula. <laughs> Well, Will and I headed to Mona Foma this summer for a weekend of pretty extraordinary art and a bit of music too. Um, it's the last one that's going to be held in Hobart, actually. It's going to be moved uh, soon to Launceston. Um, really? Yeah. Into yeah. a new, a new, a new well, space? Well, across a whole series of venues. Yes, I think so. I mean, it'll still be curated by Brian Ritchie, mm. but, um, uh, and it will still be part of the same organisation, but they're actually just relocating it. I okay. Think. I think he wants to turn Mona into a hotel. I think he, he wants to turn Mona into a hotel and a casino. And I think uh, the, the Tasmanian government are probably quite keen to enliven Launceston okay. in a similar way. So if he's going to make a casino, will he be able to bet in his own casino? Um, I don't know because the, I think the casino that he wants to have is not open to Australians. It's open However, to high Mark, rollers. Chinese. Owning a casino is having a bet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's I, was, true. I was being a little bit facetious. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is, yes, but it isn't going to be open to, um, uh, to Australian nationals, no. Which is, I think, is fabulous because I, I think it's a funding model for the museum, mm. and I also think it's wonderful because it's bringing money into the country. Do you mean I have to uh, 
drop my Australian citizenship if I want to play roulette in Hobart. Yeah, but why would you want to play roulette in Hobart? I do want to he play roulette. Playing roulette. Do you? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the thing is, we, we, then we, not, we don't really care if the Chinese destroy, you know, ruin themselves um, by betting in in David's casino in Hobart. Well, no? I guess that's the presumption is that we don't. Mm. That, we're, that we're, okay. we're gleeful that they should hand over their money. Yes. Okay. Anyway, right. and so I think he doesn't want. They, they don't want him to have too much competition for the Rest Point Casino. Mm. It's a wretched little place. It is. It's anyway. a wretched place. I don't, yeah. I've never been in there. Mm. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned, of course, this this festival that's curated by Brian Ritchie. He was the bass player, or st- I should say, he still is the bass player for the Violent Femmes, and Vums. Uh, Vums. Uh, Violent Farm. Or oh, how do you say Violent then? Violent. Violon Femme. Femme. Yeah, okay. Um, ridiculous. <laughs> which is, was pretty amazing. It brought together a really eclectic mix of, of artists uh, from, you know, a, a huge range. It was black metal Norwegian band, Mayhem, which I didn't go to, I have to point out. But there was also the glorious blending of Iraqi and cellist Karim Wasfi. And, uh, the is Mike... he the one who goes to all the bomb sites? Yes, and... he is, yes. and he plays in the sites. Yes, yes, amazing guy. Yeah, he is amazing. Yeah. As um, But he, he was paired on the main stage down there with um, uh, 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 the maestro of the Oud, Rahim Al-Hajj. And I, I'm not exactly sure where he is from. I, I think he is um, Egyptian, but I'm actually not sure. Probably sounds a bit. The Oud is like a form of lute. Yes, it? yes. yes. Yeah, and it was in combination, the two were just mm. incredible. There was also the Tunisian rise singer, Emil Mathluthi, um, uh, but the thing that was I thought was really amazing that I really really loved was Gordon um, Gano, who was a lead singer from the violin violon femme, femme, reciting well, well, was putting Australian poetry to his music mm. in the James Terrell uh, amphitheatre there, which was just fabulous. Mm. And I have to say, being a femme, femme. Fan for a very long time, that I was really, really astounded. As was Will, actually. Both of us have been, really enjoyed their music forever and ever, but I had never seen a picture of him, and he was not at all as I expected. <laughs> as a, he looked kind of normal. Normal, yes. Yeah, he did, which, of course, he doesn't sound like it. He sounds like a sort of a huge, tall, skinny yokel with a big Adam's apple and, you know... <laughs> I don't know, but he wasn't that at all. But whose poetry was he reciting? All sorts of different Australian mm. poets. A quite old poetry, some of it. Um, I, I, I suspect somebody had given him a book, and he just uh, so he's reciting in a, in a. He, he was singing. Singing. But, it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, yeah. But that was really <clears throat> terrific. Um, so look, there were just there was just so much of everything everywhere. You know, a really big different range of things you could uh, you could pick and choose what you like, and at the same time. Uh, Dip into the um, into the gallery, which is always <coughs> fabulous. I think it's a, a, a it's a lovely feeling of openness in the in Momo that you, you can actually yeah. be you know, you can, you're outside, you're up in the air, or you can go down into yep. the cool of the of the building. Yeah, and the music and the food are all good. It's, it's everything a, it was is a great. lovely experience. And the other thing that I think was incredibly great, and I really uh, um, applaud them for, is not selling too many tickets. Mm. It just wasn't packed. Mm. It was there were lots of people there, and there were people from all ages and all demographics mm. and everything, which is and wonderful. presumably sold out and sold out, but uh, not packed. You could right. you could get go around. up and you could go <clears throat> get a drink if you wanted to. You could go and sit, find a place to sit down and listen to that music if you wanted to. It was the, you could get food in the restaurants. Mm. It was fabulous. Mm. Good. Yeah. So anyway. and next year it's in Launceston. Next year it, that's in Launceston. Although of course Dark Mofo will still be in Hobart. Okay. This is the summer festival. Yes.
Okay, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit later on, a little bit about the Museum of Everything, which is their temporary exhibition that's on there at the moment. That was fantastic. But before we do that, um, we're going to have a chat with singer-songwriter Ruth Rogers-Wright uh, about the show she's starring in um, at Chapel of Chapel this, later this month. It's called Nina Simone, Liberian Days. And I've got a track, first of all, that we're going to play from her, which is... It's a track from an earlier show. It's called Nina Simone... On February the 7th, Nina Simone, Liberian Days, opens at Chapel Off Chapel. Written by Neil Cole, it stars our next guest, Ruth Rogers-Wright. Originally from the UK, Ruth first cut her teeth in the new British jazz movement with the band Moon Twist, and since her arrival here in Australia has become very well rooted in the jazz scene. Her show, Nina Simone, Black Diva, played at Theatre at Wine Lounge in Rye in 2005 when I ran it with a wonderful uh, Kaz and Rob Fossian. Uh, so some of our listeners may have seen Ra uh, Ruth down here uh, a few years ago. But since then, she's gone on to bigger things, and notably Neil Cole's productions, the last of which, Nina Simone, Black Diva Power, did two seasons in Melbourne before a sellout season in Edinburgh. Her beautiful voice has been likened to several big stars, Sade and Sarah Vaughan among them, but it is as Nina Simone that she has become inextricably linked in a series of musical theatre productions that leave you with the sense that you've been in the presence of the great lady herself. She's on the line today to talk about Liberian Days in which she's starring, premiering at Chapel Off Chapel next week. Good morning, Ruth, and welcome to Arts About. Oh, good morning, Sally. Oh, it's so wonderful to talk with you again after all this time. I know, I know, a long time no see. Yes, it is. Hey, <clears throat> look, we all know something about Nina Simone, her amazing trajectory from preacher's daughter to singer, songwriter, pianist and activist in the civil rights movement, um, where she advocated the path of resistance. Um, she was very outspoken and very angry, wasn't she? She sure was, yeah. She was disappointed because she had trained to be um, a concert pianist and she was hoping to be America's first black concert pianist and so she always felt that she was rejected uh, from the uh, musical college the Philadelphia College um, because of her color and so you know that was literally something that she mentioned even when you know every single concert that you saw her, she would mention that she had been rejected you know mm. uh, yeah so she was angry and I think she um, suffered from depression as well uh, you know well no she definitely suffered from depression so yeah. yeah, and she was an artist. <laughs> she, yeah, she was an artist, and she was thwarted at, at, at many at many turns in her life. Uh, she ended up. I, I know that she gained quite a lot of success in Europe, but returned kind of despondent to America because with an arrest warrant hanging over her head, and she ended up heading off to first of all, I think it was Barbados, wasn't it? Oh yeah, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think that was just before where I think she had quite a quite a well documented affair with the prime minister at the time, but um, it was at Miriam McCabe's uh, invite I think that led her to Liberia, which is where your show comes in, isn't it? Yes, that's right. The idea of the show is that you know, as an African American, she sort of returns to her roots, you know, the roots of Africa. And in a way, she just becomes like totally revitalized and refreshed in her soul. And so the show is about that. And she finds freedom in a few love affairs. And, um, you know, she doesn't have that whole thing of the black movement um, hanging over her, which had failed at that time. And so that really made her feel really, you know, like depressed and a bit lost. Yes, it, did, it really didn't. Uh, it, it really didn't 
uh, happen the way so many fervent um, activists at that time were hoping, weren't they? Did yeah, it? no, yeah. no. I mean, I mean, quite a few people, you know, were killed, like Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And uh, Malcolm X, uh, who was actually a friend and a neighbour of hers. Mm. Did she do any and, writing in Liberia? Pardon? Did she write while she was in Liberia? Um, she wrote a few things when she came back, and I'm not quite sure if she wrote uh, much there. Um, you know, it's more of a, um, a sabbatical, I suppose, but a, a few tunes came out of it, like um, Funkier Than a Mosquito's Tweeter, which I just love. love that's a good the title. title of that album and that song. Yeah, if only I had a copy of that one. <laughs> that yeah, is fantastic. Funkier Than a Mosquito's Tweeter. Do you sing that in the show? Yes, we do. Oh, good. <laughs> Actually, yes, yes. And we also um, do uh, the the uh, Langston Hughes song, um, Mr... Uh, what's it called? Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is terrible. How can I forget? <laughs> you know, um, I can probably sing it to you, but I can't remember. But anyway, she wrote uh, a song based on a Langston Hughes um, poem. Uh, now... This is a collaboration, that, well, this play has been written by uh, Neil Cole. He's somebody yeah. that you've collaborated with before. In fact, you had a big hit, didn't you, in Edinburgh just recently? Pardon? You had a big hit with uh, one, a previous production of, that Neil yes, has written? Yes, we did. I mean, we ended up with four-star reviews at the Edinburgh um, Festival, uh, which, you know, like there's about apparently a couple of thousand shows a day there. Uh, so to even get any kind of notice at all is an amazing um, thing. And, yeah, we also took it to the Adelaide um, Festival as well. So we really had um, quite a good run with that show. And while we were in the Edinburgh uh, Festival, Neil and I, one night we were talking because we'd been invited back, you know, to do the show again. And we thought, well, no, let's do something fresh. So I actually suggested how about... Nina Simone in Liber her Liberian days, and Neil was like, "Yes, all right, we'll write. Some I'll write something like that." So eventually, he did write it. You know, he finished this. It's fresh off the off the page, if you like, because I think he finished it about three months ago. So mm. it's pretty incredible that you know that yeah that we're, we're already doing it, and then we're going to take it to Edinburgh this year. Oh, you are fantastic! That's wonderful. Yeah. So what form does the play uh, play take? Because it's a one-woman show, isn't it? Yes, it's a one-woman show, so, you know, no pressure for me. No pressure. Um, <laughs> no. Um, and with Mark Fitzgibbon on the piano, who is a really fantastic jazz pianist, and we also have um, Hammond, um, who is going to be playing um, the djembe and percussion. So it's, you know, got a very kind of, I think a very sort of, intimate um, feel and, you know, sort of a bit of storytelling of, you know, of that, how she got there and, you know, what it was like to be in Liberia and then to, to come back again. At, she ends up at the Montreux Jazz Festival. So there's lots and lots of songs. I've also written a couple of tunes, um, especially for the show as well. Oh, wonderful. And so it's going to go on, it's, it's running for a couple of weeks, I think, yes, at, uh, right. uh, at Chapel of Chapel. Days. So 
don't miss it. Absolutely <laughs> not. Well, what I will do is I will put a link to it on our Facebook page uh, so that uh, our listeners get it, can, can find it very easily and get down there. I'm really looking forward to seeing it and, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with you again too. Um, it's, it sounds like a wonderful show and anybody that likes Nina Simone's music is going to adore hearing you sing, sing these songs because I think yeah. as you said actually in the last show when we, that we did several years ago that in a way you, um, you almost channel Nina, don't you? Yeah, like I, I, yes, I do. I really am into the idea of channeling her energy. I was lucky enough to see Nina Simone um, six, about six times in the UK. And so I really kind of picked up this um, sort of energy from her where she was incredibly honest. And so it wasn't like she was, you know, going to be like, oh, look, I'm doing a concert. I'm just going, you know, I'm going to go through the motions of my songs. It was literally like each time she was reliving it. And so that was kind of risky for her because when she stopped singing and stopped playing the piano, then she would, I think, feel quite nervous and whatever she was suffering from would, like, you know, come out. So I think us fans of Nina Simone, we all knew that we were probably going to be told off a few mm -hmm. times as well as, like, incredibly moved. Um, and in this show, I, I channel her energy, but I'm also really, like, performing her as Ruth. Right, so you're not going to tell me off if I walk in a minute later or if um, I cough at the right no. time? No, <laughs> well, who knows? You know, like, who knows? I could, you know, could do anything. Still just said in me, you know, yes. But, um, but there's, you know, there's, yes, there's a few surprises, like, towards the end where we'll, we'll be um, going out there into the audience, I think. Wonderful. Well, it sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, it's going to be some magnificent music and it's going to be a chapter of uh, Nina Simone's life that perhaps not all of us have heard about before. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Ruth Rogers-Wright. Um, Thank and, you very much, Sally. Thanks for having me. And as I said, I'll put uh, a link up on our Facebook page uh, if anyone's interested in tickets or they can go to the Chapel Off Chapel website. Thanks again, Ruth. And we're going to Thank go you. out with that. Bye, bye. bye. See you later. We're going to go out with a little track from her, from Nina Simone called Mississippi Goddamn. It's the first song that, she, it's, a, it's a song that she, she wrote and announced was her first civil rights song and came to her in a rush of fury, hatred and determination, she said. It was a direct challenge to, a challenge to the widely held beliefs that race relations could change gradually and called for more immediate action. Melbourne's a big consumer of live music and there's lots of young aspiring musicians out there creating things all the time. There's such a lively scene, it's hard to hear about who's doing what and it's very difficult to distill it. And it's also a very difficult road and a difficult industry for young artists to negotiate. And even though the state of modern technology makes it much easier than it used to be to create music, the sheer volume of artists out there competing for your ears makes it very hard for them to get music to you. And the other thing that makes it very hard for young artists to make their way successfully to your sound system is that the system is geared to the mainstream, um, the mainstream style, I should say, and anyone who falls out, that, out on the edges of that uh, has an even tougher time getting, certainly getting any kind of airplay. And often these artists are 
the most ones the ones most worth listening to. Coming up at the Grand Hotel next weekend is a new lineup that might address some of those difficulties under the presenting banner of MHM Management. It's a local company here who manages Maxon amongst others. She's a rise singer. They've put together a, a lineup called Year Rideo, which is a very Australian expression. Mm. Uh, it's a travelling show celebrating the diversity of Australia's best up-and-coming musical acts, and it puts together some of Australia's best acts, overlapping genres and opening audiences to music and performance that they might not necessarily have had a chance to hear before. It plans to bring a wide range of music to venues all around the country. And this weekend on at the Grand Hotel, there's going to be Emily South with a bit of country rock, Jamie McDowell and Tom Thumb with a guitar beatbox combo. Um, and in fact, Tom Thumb's apparently one of the most viewed TED Talks in the country, and I'll try and find a link for him. Um, he does that extraordinary beatboxing sound. Um, oh, yes, I saw him in Momo last year. Did you? Yes, ah, yeah, he's amazing. Is he? Well, he is. so I believe he is, and his, um, his video yeah. is, has been the it's most just, viewed. It's a tall guy with a very sort of balding head. Well, here's a picture it? of him here. There we go. Look. Jamie McDowell and Tom Thumb. It doesn't work terribly well on radio, but I'm just showing Mark. Uh, no, maybe it's not. Okay. But anyway, he um, and also along with them is Maxon, who is a local songstress and someone we'd love to have on the show very, uh, very soon. She has been inspiring audiences all over the state with her amazing voice and in pretty incredible <coughs> songwriting skills. And her 2016 release of the single No Impersonator is is the beginning of an upward trajectory, I am no doubt, uh, in no doubt of. Um, she's going to be one of the five uh, in the lineup of this touring show, which begins, it's the very first one, is at February 9th at the Grand Hotel. Grand Hotel where? In, in, Mornington. in Mornington. Yeah, so I'll put a link up on there. But in the meantime, here's Maxon with um, uh, n- uh, No Impersonator, and uh, we'll be coming back soon after that. What are you going to talk to us again um, about again? I learning them. to drive. Oh, when, yes. Learning I, to drive. When I was about 14, um, my father was a great mate of Stanislav Halpin, who we knew as Stasha. And uh, Stasha was a painter and uh, a potter and lived in Hampton. And the fa- as a family, we used to go and visit him quite often. He had a pottery in the backyard. He's quite an interesting guy. He'd, uh, and he'd, when he had nothing else to do, he'd just make little balls of clay and then pinch a face onto the front of them mm. and uh, just sit there, just let them dry. They were rarely fired. John, but he, sorry, I have a question. Was that often? When he was he had nothing left to do. Yeah. yeah. It must have been because the whole backyard was about a, <laughs> was full of them. a foot deep in little heads. <laughs> oh, he should be in the Museum of Everything. <laughs> it was a beautiful backyard. I loved it out there. And there was a massive painting inside his house in the passageway, a great big uh, red and black and yellow thing, um, which I used to sit in the kitchen in a kitchen chair and look at through the kitchen door. And it's hung on the passageway wall in there. And... A, just astounded me, this painting, as a 14-year-old. Of his? A painting of his? Or? Yeah, a painting of his. But I was there one day, and um, I don't know what they were all up to, but Stasha suddenly appeared, and he said, uh, do you want to learn how to drive? And I was 14, so I said, yep. And uh, we went out, and we got in my mother's car. I wonder, did your mother know? No. Mm. And, was um, that the Saab? It was a Volkswagen Beetle. And uh first thing he said to me was, 
you should have a shot of vodka um, <gasps> because you shouldn't ever drive a car unless you've had a shot of vodka. And I said, no, I'll be right, thanks. I <laughs> he he, he was, was Polish. He was Polish, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, we set off and with lots of gear crunching and kangaroo bouncing and you know I really didn't know what I was doing and uh and with Stasha more or less sort of yelling at me about what was going on um and he gave me most of all directions but he also some he gave me a bit of information he said that we have to go around the back streets because of the police and I said okay what's what are the police doing and he said well the police it's illegal to drive a car. He said, it's illegal to drive a car. I said, oh, is it? And he said, well, haven't you noticed the police keep pulling people over and charging them with driving a car? (laughs) 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 Which seemed probably about right at the age of 14. Um, But the directions continued and we ended up down at the local pub, of course. Uh, And he disappeared into the front bar and I went over the road into the sort of foreshore playground over there, hoping that I would run into someone that I knew because I, after all, had a car keys in my pocket and was apparently in charge of a car. I was there for hours uh, until Stasha sort of emerged from the hotel and then I uh, he had me drive him home again. He's getting better at it, Mark, by the time I got back. Was he just treating you like his... Uh taxi service or his chauffeur do you I learnt Sally that when we got back to the house I learnt that not only did he not have a license but he'd in fact himself never driven a car <laughs> 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 and he wanted to go down the pub hilarious yeah. uh, do you think um, do you think that set you off to a bar- very bad career in driving no. Well, you listen, you had to get to the I'm pub. an excellent driver. <laughs> Are you? Well, I'm yes. glad to hear that. Yeah, and I don't have a slug of vodka before I drive the car. <laughs> <laughs> but I have noticed the police pulling lots of people over. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's just because they're driving a car, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What have we got from you, Mark? Yeah, Mark. Well, I learned to drive with my mother in the 1967 Impala Chevrolet. Was your mother in the car? She was in the car sometimes, but not always. Sometimes yeah. I'd take her wig and get the spare keys out and go down to Point Leo. Go yeah, surfing. I vaguely remember the Impala. I do remember the Challenger. The Dodge Challenger, yes, that was something else. God, mm. we petrol heads. Mm. Anyway, so I'm going to talk a little bit about... I'm going to start with the fact that Ingvar um, Kaprad died. Who? <clears throat> Ingvar Kaprad is the first two um, initials of IKEA, or IKEA, as you say, oh. in this country. He oh. died yesterday at uh, 91 years oh, old. Oh, the, the founder of, the founder of Ikea. Ikea. <clears throat> and he started his business career by selling matches to neighbours at age five. Right. It's pretty early. Yeah. yeah. Um, created Ikea, Ikea in 1943 when he was 17. Uh, didn't Is that ha- how the Scandinavians would say it, Ikea? No, they don't say it. They say <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> oh, do so they? It's the French who say Ikea, oh. of right. course. Um, they wouldn't say it, Ikea, in... Um, in Australia, just because it means it's more icky. Uh, exactly, I know. Oh, but, no, of I, course. But, yeah, I think I have heard it pronounced in, by Scandinavians, but it's nothing you, right. you couldn't. Sounds like you're about to be sick, I think. 
Um, he didn't hit the big time until 1956 when watching an employee take the legs off a table to fit into a customer's car. He realized by, by, by folding the legs and having folding furniture, he could save space and save money. Mm, flat packing. Exactly. <clears throat> Although being there, he drove an old Volvo and didn't own a Rolex. <laughs> So, uh, God bless. That's God bless, yes, yeah, that's good, okay. Now, um, apparently, I just have to have a bit of sex, okay? So oh, well, where well, would we, we be? It no, wouldn't exactly. be your segment if there were no <laughs> sex in it, would there? So, the male magpie, as is true of most birds, has no penis. Really? Mm. So, the meeting of cloacas, which is yes. both the female and the male have cloacas, um, during lovemaking requires a female to twist her cloacula slightly upwards, moving her tail feathers sideways, while the male has to downturn his. Ah. And off you go. I didn't ever know that. Mm, no, they don't have penises. Well, they're I'm glad birds. that I've learnt that because I'm sick of those magpies looking at me <laughs> and just more or less saying to me, check out the beak on me. You know, <laughs> they're very proud of their beaks. Mm. And they sing a lot. Do you know that the nightingales in, in Europe, they sing... Uh, only at night w- when they're looking for a partner. As soon as they find a partner, they stop singing. <gasps> Isn't really? that terrible? Yeah. Anyway, so the big news is apparently Harvey Weinstein has started a new production company called Massage Me. <laughs> <laughs> and the first film being made is yes. a psychosexual thriller direct- directed by Woody Allen, yes. working tile who me too, <laughs> should do well in China. <laughs> the lead actor is, guess who, Kevin Spacey. Playing himself, ah. not with himself, John. Yeah. His love match is Lindsay Lohan, who soon turns to drugs when she realizes Kevin's more interested in Rupert Everett, who has a small part in the film. As to, does Jeffrey Rush, <laughs> <laughs> James Franco, Casey Affleck, Michael Douglas, and what's the name of that Australian guy who's in the Rocky Horror uh, Show? Craig McLaughlin. Craig McLaughlin. They're all yeah. in there. And a very speci- special guest appearance of Lance Armstrong playing a performance enhancer of failed actors, which is an uphill battle. And that's we will good. all go and see we it. Coming out soon. soon. Yeah, that's Coming good. What, um, uh, whose production company? Uh, Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yes. What's Massage it called? Me. Massage Me, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <coughs> we'll be looking for that one. Yeah. Okay. We'll let you know when we hear more. All right. Well, look, the, the next big thing which you, you will have to look into is Jordan Peterson, who is a Canadian uh, psychiatrist who had an interview with Kathy Newman on BBC. It's had four million views on YouTube. Um, they're talking about free speech. She was attacking him, and he said she wanted to know how his right to free speech trumped a transgender person's right not to be offended. Okay, yeah. His answer, a very is, interesting question. which is very good, because, he explained, in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. You're exercising your freedom of speech to risk offending me. He's talking to her in the interview, and that's fine. More power to you as far as I'm concerned. Mm, good okay. answer. So this guy, apparently he, uh, he's written a book called 12 um, Rules of Life, mm-hmm. um, an antidote to chaos. He says men in the West are suffering a crisis of masculinity because they are encouraged from birth by an uh, apologetic culture to believe that traditional masculine qualities, strength, aggression, self-reliance are negative and destructive. <clears throat> While feminine qualities, willingness to cooperate, empathy, etc., are the way forward for the human race. This is so wrong, he says, forcing men to become more agreeable, uh, less, cooperative, uh, less competitive, will be the death of, of them and all of us. Okay, so he, this is an idea. I'm not saying I agree mm. with this. He thinks social justice warriors are mostly faking it, can't abide virtue singulars, 
and intellectuals are all arrogant. Blames left-wing academics for the mumbo-jumbo that infects. Where does mumbo-jumbo come from? I must mm. look up the etymology. Can that I infects know. public life. Can't see the point of women's studies. Now, I've never heard of women's studies. Is that something that... I'm sure, that, sure it is. I'm sure mumbo-jumbo will be on a metopoeic. Yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably. sure it is. Yeah. Um, so, George, have I noticed you being overly cooperative, Mark? <laughs> no. <laughs> so no, you know, I, I, I think that there is something in that. I think that there is definitely a pendulum swinging mm. one way to the other, and that that will always, uh, you know, there will always be a to and fro across, across that the because, line. Yeah, across the line. Yeah, yeah. And we've gone. And we, we may have gone a little bit too, bit too far. far. Yeah. Well, they're saying about the Me Too hashtag thing is, um, it's it's really turned into quite a bum fight. Mm-hmm. Because it's just so much. I mean, the whole thing. If you've ever been on social media, I was I tried in the very beginning. It's just horrible what people say to each other, and you and people from who you have no idea who they are. Mm. I found that just however, so the, I personally, I think the most interesting stuff that is going on there within what you're saying is that uh, the importance of not being terribly worried about offence when you yes. when you're both thinking and making remarks. Well, you know, this is because it. This, this is what they're saying. We're all you don't want to hurt people. You don't want to hurt people, but nor do you want to have a condom put on your way no. of thinking as a yeah. result. Well, of to challenge people to you know, to you know, not 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 to get upset, basically, really right. not to get upset yeah. and, and not to be outraged. And I can you know, I, I could, I'm a bit of a hypocrite myself in that sense. I can really get angry for no reason at all. Anyway, can an on. ice cream truck can make him furious. Really. Yes. Oh yeah. God. The sound. The sound. So um, Noel Pearson. <laughs> yes. An indigenous writer who I didn't know about before I came yes. back, extremely articulate, yep. speaks very well, talking about Australia uh, slash Invasion Day. Yes. He suggests that we should celebrate AI Day on both the 25th to signify the end of 60,000 years, give a day or two, of First People's reign, and the 26th to make the beginning of white people's, to mark the beginning of white people's governance. I thought it was a very good that's idea. Good, yeah, that's not bad, is it? Mm. No, Pearson, I, I very much um, like his Although there have been an, any number of people who would um, not be willing to acknowledge that the 25th represents the end of Aboriginal... Um, well, that's true. I, I should be careful with my wording. It's not so much the end, the end of their... But by themselves. Right. Autonomy. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, no, it's extraordinary. This is he says that's it, that people you know, they have survived and that they are coming back and that there is a you know, re- resurgence. It's, it's a I think they should celebrate Australia Day on the day Australia became Australia. Well, Federation Day, yeah, Federation mm. Day, no, yeah. uh, nineteen oh one. Yeah, I have heard an argument for May eight as well. But yeah, just May because. eight. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that could only come from your husband. So is that it? Have I got more time? I've got lots uh, of things I want to talk no, about. No, 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 no. We can. Um, well, I, I wanted to talk about the Museum of Everything. I'm sure you're going yes. to butt in. So why don't why don't <laughs> yes. I start now? Okay. Because that was one of the, that's the temporary <laughs> exhibition that's on at Mona at the moment, and it runs through until April. And um, to descri- yep. describe it, first of all, it's the world's first and only wandering institution for the untrained, unintentional, undiscovered, and unclassifiable artists of modern times. And it's been compiled by Londoner James Brett, and the growing collection is housed temporarily in, in Mona. Now, can you possibly remember what you, we were speak, speaking about before when we yep. were off, off the radio? 
about how how it affected you? Well, for, yes, for me, I because it, it is a huge thing. There are 27 rooms down there in Mona, and that's not the entire collection, and the collection's growing, and in fact, I think he's here in Australia at the moment looking for more work to go into it. But what, what I was incredibly struck by looking at all of this work was that it was that it was a f- philosophical point I, I responded to i couldn't believe that there were so many people out there doing stuff that that there's something in the human condition that that compels people to process whether or not you know presumably people do it in lots of different ways but there are lots of people who process it by creating things mm. and mm. the sheer volume of it attested to something really really basic about the human spirit and i I found it really powerful. Making I, stuff. Yeah, making stuff. Mm. And and a lot of the work in there is not making it. It's not making it for anybody else. It's making it for themselves. I love that sort of pointless um, pointless result that you sometimes get. Mm. Um, there's an American sculptor who made an object which is a um, can of oil. And within the can of oil is a little machine and uh, when it's running, all it does is lift up a smaller can of oil from within the oil and pour it all over itself. Oh, it's a perpetual motion machine, well, kind it, of. <laughs> it needs energy to run, but it's, it's self-oiling. <laughs> but that's all it does is oil itself. Yeah, you know. lovely. Mm. Yes. Yes, the sort of... Uh, <laughs> The nonsense of it and, and well, yet at the same the, time the industry that's, that's gone into creating it is incredible. The so, remarks that you could sort of fit to that, to an object like that, are almost endless. Well, I mean, you could sounds like a, you know, a billionaire with a, um, a Bugatti Veyron in his garage. That yeah, never doing used, the same thing. Doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Suspends a couple of million. The same man <laughs> made a drill, an electric drill with a uh, drill bit on it that went into a gearing system and it went through a series of gears about 20 meters long gearing it down to the bit at the other end which was in a block of concrete and it had was at uh, had a revolution of one turn in every two billion years or something <laughs> <laughs> his name, the artist, i can't remember his name but he said, um just to get back to the um yeah. the museum uh, of everything museum of everything you we, we, we were you were speaking so beautifully about the show which i've so, i've seen in um, well, both in france and and in paris and london and i've met the guy brett james who's ah, a East, uh, yes. londoner who's friends with quite a few people i know and unfortunately his reputation is being is has is which is you know maybe it could be wrong that he's collecting a lot of these unknown and unrepresented um and often naive and ignorant artists or not even just people mm. collecting their works and making shows out of them and actually getting a lot of kudos from doing this whereas in fact all he's really do, interested in is making money from the from imagine the, making money out of art what a scoundrel yeah. out of, well, out that, of, well the thing is that he's out of unrepresented and, and um i guess that you know they don't really care either way perhaps people, the art in the whole thing mark is his ability to collect the right objects to um put together a show that people are interested in going and I, having a look at i think it's in Relation to the sort of continuing sort of roller coaster of, of contemporary art that we're, you know, we're looking for people who are who are sort of out of the out of the scheme of things and trying to put them in there. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. I'm not. I, I wasn't so impressed by what he showed in uh, Paris. Right. But perhaps what he's showing in Hobart is a is yes. A, or or it'll probably be some of the same things, but there will probably be different More, things yeah. as well. But I. But I. It was you like almost, the concept. Of I like the concept of it. Yeah. I actually thought that that it was a, it was about much more than the the sum of its parts. It was it was. I, 
yeah, it was really an incredible thing. I felt felt I felt almost godlike in a way, mm. looking mm. just see not that not that I was raised up in any way, but I, but I was seeing humanity from an objective position, mm. Mm. and was just amazed and moved by the the industry and that that people have to express Mix themselves up, yeah. or to work things out or and and you I mean lots of it is about you know people who have had terrible things happen to mm. them or 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 who have had difficult lives mm. or who are handicapped well, when you or look all into, sorts of things. when you look into the um, history of people big major creators most a lot of them have has come out of suffering of some sort mm. and this is what I want I just wanted to mention mm. before we stop uh, people like uh, Hannah Arendt Joan Didion Susan Sontag Mary McCarthy and Diane Arbus, so all, all Americans, all saw the world in an unsentimental way. All argued passionately for the ascetic, political and moral obligation to face painful reality with directness and clarity, without cons- consolation or compensation. Okay, so it's, this is, once again, when you look at our, uh, the, the preceding generations, the, the acceptance of suffering was much Greater, they mm-hmm. talk without having to complain or explain. Yep. It's a very, it's a very French saying to don't complain, don't explain. Um, and so they were, you know, they were accused of failures of feeling. These writers, and I, you know, when I think of women writers, I think of women in general creators. I think about these sort of women who was who were really tough. Diane Arbus, you know, she, she was she called the people she photographed the aristocrats of suffering, which I think is a, a wonderful term. Diane mm. Arbus, though, was I mean, she wasn't uh, she, she was a, a suburban. She was a servant Jewish housewife uh, who uh, attached herself to um, the people that she photographed. She, well, they they weren't people that she just. No, she went out and looked for them. Yeah, but she was. She wasn't. She part befriended of them. a lot of them. She wasn't part of them. She was documenting them. Right. But she, she committed suicide afterwards. So yeah. that's a good sign. I had a friend. Oh, who, lovely. I had a friend, if I may, collected mm-hmm. uh, what he called art brute, mm. and. Uh, he had a painting which always fascinated me, which was a bit of masonite that had a black and purple smear on it that had been rubbed in a circle by someone's hand. Horrible looking. And it had written across the bottom, My Darkest Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty clear. Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, Art mm. Bruce was, was um, the beginning of the art of everything. That was, uh, what's his name? The French guy who did those, um, Jean, what's his name? Um, oh, I forget it. He was a wine merchant until he was 40, then he made art. Okay. He did all those pyrostyrex sculptures. Anyway, mm. running out of time. We are okay, running out time. of time, folks. I'm sorry about that. We could go on and on for hours. It's fascinating. Um, Framing Nature is still on at McClelland Sculpture Park until March. Ruth Rogers Wright is starring in the Nina Simone Liberian Days at Chapel Off Chapel. That's the 7th to the 18th. Have a look on the Facebook page if you're interested in that. I'll put a link up so that you can get some tickets. Um, Vikram Seth, The Golden Gate, is a novel uh, written in verse, which is definitely worth reading. It was wrote in 2010. It's a a novel about Silicon Valley. It's a contemporary time. Oh, really? What is it called? Written in verse, The Golden Gate. The Golden Gate. That sounds interesting. Even the acknowledgements are written in verse. Rhyming verse? Rhyming verse. Oh, my God. The whole thing. Wow. Just beautiful. And you start thinking in verse. Goodness me, for some of us poets. Um, Bridget Thomas has an exhibition called Fish and Ships on uh, Merrick's General uh, uh, Store. Excellent. That, yeah, that's opened already and it runs through to the 25th of February. I think we should be getting her in, don't you, John? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who's this? 
Uh, Bridget, Bridget Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. Um, uh, on at Whistlewood until the 4th of February is a uh, an exhibition called 2020, A Sense of, Sense of Place. I think I need to turn that typewriter off. It's distracting me. Um, it's a richly explorative exhibition of contemporary Australian landscape by 40 leading artists of diverse cultural backgrounds from around Australia. So that's... Um, uh, probably quite interesting, and that runs through until I think it's till the end of February. Also coming up at the Grand Hotel, Year Right. It's a live music night on at the Grand Hotel. Uh, there's it's a lineup of five young, very diverse musicians, featuring Maxon, Emily South, Tim Ayres, Tempest Sun, Jamie McDonnell, and Tom Thumb. So um, if you've uh, if you've just tuned in. You've missed Arts About this week, but you can hear the repeat on Wednesdays at 12 or listen to the podcasts on the station website. We'll be on at the same time next week, 11am Sunday. You can find links uh, to some of the things we've been talking about today on our Facebook page, or if you like our page, you'll get some regular posts and get to know what's coming up on the next one as well. And remember, everybody, we may not know everything about art. We know what we like, art brute. Yeah. yeah I wish I could remember his name. I'll have to. I'll get it as soon as I get out of here. Yeah. Who? The French artist. I've forgotten oh, already. Yeah. Who's name? Yeah. See you later, everybody. <laughs>